So glad that you're here with us. Today's a special Sunday for us. It's our second here, as I mentioned, but we, we wanted to take some time today to dedicate this space to the Lord. This has been a church before. I'm sure it was dedicated to the Lord before, but it's really important that as a community, uh, having been given this space, not literally, but almost, I mean, it was a, we feel like it's a straight up gift from God to us. Um, we we want to take some time corporately uh, to, to welcome the presence of God in this place, to dedicate it to him. Last Sunday, we, we were grateful and we appreciated the, the presence of Christ as symbolized by the cross here. Today, there's three new pieces of furniture, for lack of a better word, up here, and we'll explain that to you in a minute. And I also invited three really important people in my life to come on up, join us for this. These are men who have a story that intersects with ours, whether we realize it or not. Let me introduce them to you. This is uh, Pastor Steve Scott. We're a part of the Church of the Nazarene. Emmaus is part of a bigger network of churches. Uh, Steve oversees about 60 congregations in this area. The district superintendent is the word for that. And um, so he, he has responsibility. He has accountability to the pastors who lead the local churches, does a beautiful job. He's a man of incredible character. And, um, and he, he, um, one of the things I appreciate about him is he prays for us um, by name, prays for my family by name. Um, it's a gift to have somebody as your supervisor, essentially. That's much more than that, but somebody who's an advocate for me and uh, somebody who I can trust and bring concerns to. In addition, when I was in high school, Steve discipled me. He mentored me. We met weekly my junior and senior years, and those were hugely formative days for me. And I'm so glad we're back uh, and have been back for a while, uh, going blow by blow, shoulder, by, shoulder to shoulder. Secondly, I want to introduce you to Scott Hubbard, Um, Some of you may know Scott. Scott pastored the Lincoln Church of the Nazarene from 1986 when it was organized to 1992, and then he moved on. He now pastors a big church in Lodi as part of the Church of the Nazarene. And while Scott was pastoring the Lincoln Church of the Nazarene here, Lincoln, the city, was about 6,000 people. The church was a smaller church, never raised a ton of money, but what they did do was build houses and sell them. And they did so in order to develop a three-acre piece of property over on East Avenue, which has just recently been turned into you know, townhomes. And the hope was to build a church there. Well, that didn't materialize. But in the wisdom of the organization, uh, the Church of the Nazarene in this area, they kept the money when that church eventually closed. Um, they kept the money that had been earned and raised and supported by the church for a future work in this town. And what's pretty amazing to consider is that the year that the Church of the Nazarene in Lincoln formally closed was the same year that the chain was taken off of the doors of this old decrepit theater, which had been abandoned by another church. They renovated it. Fast forward about 17 years, and we are purchasing this renovated theater, and this is the important part, with the money that was raised by the church that Scott pastored in the 80s, literally. They raised over six, well, what we ended up with was uh, more than that, we bought a few things, uh, but $600,000 was the down payment that we used to purchase this, this space. And um, it's really important that we understand that uh, we are receiving the fruit and the benefits um, and, the, and the hard work of others who have gone before us. And let me say one more thing. Um, what was it? Oh, yes. When I interviewed Scott in August, when I shared with you the news about this, about this facility, he said something to me that I hope I never forget. He said, I want you to know that there are people who wanted this even more than you do. Um, and that's true. There are people who sacrificed for this, for this facility, for the future of the church in, in um, this town that aren't even here anymore, 
but now we're benefiting from their sacrifice. And then finally, I want to introduce you to Tim Hansen. Tim owns Interior Wood Design in Auburn, longtime cabinet maker. Um, they do beautiful work. He gave me my first job when I was uh, in eighth grade. I swept his cabinet shop. And he has built the new pulpit and new communion table, new altars, which I'll share more about with you in the future. But even more importantly than that, Tim was the man who, when I was in middle school, he led me to Christ. He's the one who introduced me to Jesus. I didn't come from a Christian family. This was all new to me. The idea that there was a God who was interested in a relationship with me was profound, and I was hungry. And he led me to Jesus in a way that a 12, 13-year-old kid understood. And I just want I'll forever be grateful for that. So... That's it. Good. Thank you. Okay. So I've invited them to be part of this time of dedication. Uh, Steve, would you give us a word about the significance of dedicating a space to God? Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Great to be with you this morning. There are uh, ceremonies for a lot of things in uh, the world there is a ceremony that takes place in 1 Kings chapter 8 that really speaks to uh, today and the significance of a place uh, that is uh, used specifically for the glory of God. Uh, there's furnishings, people, food, lots of things around here that we want to use uh, to bring glory to God. But the ceremony that took place uh, in the temple spoke very clearly about the name of God being present in a place. I'll just jump into the middle of the prayer. The question was asked, does God really dwell on earth? And the answer to the question is, the heavens, even the highest heaven cannot contain him. How much less this temple that I have built or this place where we gather. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, O Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open toward this temple night and day, this place of which you said my name shall be there. Our prayer today in dedicating this place mm -hmm. is that above the name of the church, above the names of the people, above the ministries that are created here, right. that the name of God will be in this place Amen. to protect and to empower and to lead us where he wants us to go in the future. So we want to pray together now over these elements. Amen. Thank you. I'm going to pray for the communion table which is fitting on this very special day beginning Holy Week. It stretches all the way from that moment when Jesus was with his disciples and shared this with them to us and past us. It is a privilege for me to stand here and see the people we prayed for. Mm -hmm. Our church was never very big. We never had a permanent home. There was one high school when I was here, and it had a band room. It smelled like a band room. <laughs> and we met there for worship, and we set up chairs and did all that stuff. And then we were thrilled when we could rent the women's center which on 5th and the hall across the street where the children would play. 
we were there for years as well. So I understand setting up and tearing down. Mm -hmm. For those of you that have had to do that for years, I feel your pain. Come on. But what a beautiful place God has provided for you. And I'm so thankful that you have gathered in this place to worship. And this, this table represents Christ not only in remembrance of him, which we're called to do according to scripture, but way beyond that, in, in his presence being with us now as we experience it and as you will later in the service. It's such a meaningful part of all that we do. Singing is wonderful. Messages are wonderful. The fellowship and community is very vital and important to all of us. Mm -hmm. But meeting Jesus and interacting in a spiritual sense with his very presence mm -hmm. is such an important part of who we are as the people of God. Amen. Our prayer used to be sometimes there were two or three of us. Sometimes there was, you know, 50 or 60 or 70 that there would be a church here in this town that would love God, put him first and see people come to know him as their Lord and Savior. It was a simple prayer. Hmm. And we believed he'd answer that prayer. And it's taken a while, but it's happening and you're a part of that. And just as this communion table is a part of history, mm -hmm. from Jesus till now and on through into the future, your faithfulness, your serving, your loving, your allowing God to use you is just a part of that story. Amen. So it's my privilege to uh, lead in prayer over this particular uh, piece of furniture in your beautiful new home. Would you bow your heads with me as I do that? Father, I thank you for this table that will hold these things that represent you in a very, very special way. And Lord, however we receive this, we're receiving you. And Father, I thank you for this church where every Sunday they can experience the Lordship of Jesus and the presence of His grace through what happens at this time in the service. And Father, I just pray in the name of Jesus that you will bless this piece of furniture. Just, it's just wood, I get it, and it's, it's, it's beautiful and handcrafted. But Lord, your presence is what we long for. Yeah. And so we pray that your presence will be a part of all of this. And Lord, I thank you for the opportunity we have to to be in, your, be in your grace and be in your presence. Thank you, Lord. And I pray that every week it will be a very, very meaningful part of the service. And I pray this in Jesus' Amen. name. Amen. 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 Good morning. It's uh, my privilege this morning to be praying for these altars. They uh, Again... <laughs> They mean a lot to me. I love the symbolism of an altar where people come from their comfort zone, <clears throat> come to a place to meet God and do some serious business. And I have <clears throat> spent many, many times at altars similar to this with young students <clears throat> with my, my own breaking heart pouring out to God. But specifically, I want to tell you about a story 31 years ago. I minister to youth uh, in my church in Auburn, um, have for a long time. And 31 years ago, this little kid came into my uh, Sunday school class in the seventh grade. 
He was there for about a two-week period, three weeks maybe, and it didn't take long for me to recognize in him that he was hungry and that he was searching and that he was ready. And uh, it's pretty exciting because uh, I remember that morning specifically. And I have prayed many, many times with many, many students to receive Christ, but this one was pretty special. I taught my Sunday school class like I normally would. And at the end of class, I, I knew that something was up. I knew that God was moving. And uh, I decided that somewhat impromptu, the Holy Spirit moved me to say to these students, at the end of our worship service today, I am going to go to the altar. Whether there's an altar call or not, whether the pastor calls anybody forward to pray or not, I'm going to rattle his doors. I'm going to shake him up, and I'm coming down anyway. And uh, I said, so if you are in a position in your life where you want to find Christ, you follow me down. Meet me at the foot of the cross, would you? And uh, <laughs> I got there, I knelt, and I started praying for Nate. And I heard his footsteps running down the center aisle to get there and meet me. Pretty awesome. Pretty awesome time of prayer. Prayed with him. He invited Christ into his heart, which none of us, none of us, finds entry to heaven without doing that. None of us. We got done. We said amen. He lifted his head. And I kid you not, within a 10-second period, he looks at me and he says, Oh my gosh, Tim, what about my family? <laughs> that fast. A seventh grade kid, three weeks experience in church, and he already recognized my family needs Jesus. That fast. It's like he was born for that, you know? <laughs> He was born to do what he does right now. And I'm so incredibly proud of him. So when he asked me if I would build these pieces for him, uh, I said, no, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do that. <laughs> but um, it was my honor and my privilege. And so my job is to pray, dedicate these altars. And I'd actually like to go down and kneel at one to do that, if you would uh, allow me. Pray with, pray with me, would you? Lord God, I thank you for this day, what it means to us. I thank you for the power and the authority of Christ that lives within those who have called upon you to be their Lord and Savior and who have possibly done it at an altar very similar to this. 
Lord Jesus, I praise you for Nathan, who knelt at an altar very similar to this and found the power of Christ. Lord, I pray that this community, this town, this city, this church would reach out to them and there would be souls out in this community, in this town that are lost, that would find their way here into this building mm -hmm. and potentially find their way here at an altar where they would pour themselves out, where they would find the power and the authority of Christ and the realization that he wants to live in our hearts. God, I pray that, I, that you would just use them, <laughs> that the tears of broken hearts would moisten them. Lord Jesus, I pray that there would be many who would find restoration. Mm -hmm. They would lay their sorrows and their pains here for you. Thank you Lord. And that they would lay their hearts here for you to captivate. Thank you, Lord. Jesus, thank you. Amen. Bless them. Guard them. May they always be sacred. Amen. This is holy ground. Amen. Thank you. And we love you today. Amen. In your name. Amen. Amen. According to God's word, the first time the word was communicated, it was spoken. Hmm. And the first time God's word was spoken, nothing else existed, according to the word. So the significance of a place from which the word of God is spoken needs to be spoken in a way as if nothing else matters in life than the word of God. Let's pray for that today. Thank you. Father, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you, Lord. The written word. Thank you for the gift of Jesus, the incarnate word. Thank you that there is, for this day, a source of truth mm -hmm. above every other teaching. Thank you, Lord. We're grateful, not just for the authority of your word, but we're grateful for the completeness of your word. Thank you, Lord. And our prayer today is that whoever stands here, men, women, children, mm -hmm. who speak your word, mm -hmm. that they would do so, not just authorities, not just as people with great stories, but that they would do so as eyewitnesses yes, to your truth in yes, their God. life. Thank you, Lord. Thank and we pray, Father, for those who enter this place, that they will hear more than the person and more than the tone and more than the embellishment of illustrations, but they will hear you. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Directly to their heart. And for all of us today, we are grateful. Perhaps it will raise it a little bit for us today as we prepare to hear the word. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that it is more than a presentation, yes. but it is you, Thank you to us. Mm -hmm. And may the word that comes in this place from this central place mm -hmm. prove to be the truth of everlasting life. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.
And finally, Lord, we want to just thank you for this building again. We're grateful for every part of it. We're grateful for the, uh, the generous provision of it, all the hard work that's gone in over literally generations to raise the money for it, including the sacrifice of folks right here in this, in this congregation who have given to this space. And so we just, we give it all to you, Lord. We ask that you would, uh, that you would, your presence would be known by little children who meet in the front rooms. And that as people come into what can be a really awkward experience in church, that they'd be greeted and welcomed with grace and that they would know that they are valued. And that as we share food and conversation, that friendships would be built and mentoring would happen and people would be embraced in their pain. We pray for the teaching that happens with the older kids upstairs. That these would be places where they encounter you. We pray for the others who will come in in recovery groups and others who will use upstairs. And we pray that you would meet people here. You do healing and restorative work here. And we pray for this space, that it would be sacred space, a place of worship, a place of encountering you, Lord. And mostly, God, I wanna pray for the people that all of us would meet you here. We enter this place with open hearts, uh, laying our pride down, willing to reconcile differences, uh, opening our, ourselves up to you and to your direction and to your healing. God, may the people who gather in this place today and moving forward be affected by your loving presence. I pray that you would do great restorative work in us and through us, in this place and through the ministries that happen in this place. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you all very much for that. Thank you. Well, today, friends, is Palm Sunday, and uh, that's significant for several reasons, but probably the most important is that today, the Sunday before Easter Sunday, as Scott pointed out, marks the beginning of Holy Week, which is the final week of Jesus' life uh, before his crucifixion, which happens this Friday. More is written about this life in the, or this week in the life of Jesus than any other part of his life. Uh, for instance, John's account of Jesus's life takes 21 chapters. Well, six of them, or more than six of them, a third of them are committed to the next, the events of the next six days, which is pretty remarkable. So John's gospel, let's see if I can speak. John's gospel begins with the words, in the beginning. I mean, that's how far back he goes, but he takes incredible care to outline the events of this one week in Jesus's life because of the significance of it. Most of the time that we're talking about the stories from Jesus's life, we're not sure when they happened. Occasionally, there'll be a feast or something that will indicate, okay, that must have happened in the fall, or maybe that took place in the early spring. But beginning today, we can literally walk day by day with Jesus through the events of this week, this holy week. And then on Friday, time slows even farther and focus draws in even tighter and we can walk with Jesus hour by hour through the, through the time that led up to his crucifixion, his death on the cross. So Christian churches around the world today are gonna to be acknowledging Palm Sunday in part to invite Christians into this holy week of observing and remembering and praying and considering the rich significance of the teachings and the events and the sufferings of Jesus as he leads up to the cross. All four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record some of the events of this day. And the main event of today is called the Triumphal Entry. And it's the story of Jesus riding into Jerusalem, which is the capital of the Jewish city. And it's in the middle of these preparations for this huge Jewish festival called the Passover Feast. And amidst all of this fervor and this significant time and this significant place, Jesus rides in on a donkey, which is a puzzling choice at least for some, and it's super significant for others. 
So uh, here's the plan for the next few minutes. Here's what I'd like to do. I want to read from Matthew's account of this story, Matthew chapter 21. I want to make two observations about Jesus' ride into town. And then I really want to focus on what Jesus does, the first thing Jesus does when he gets to town, because it has to do with a building. It has to do with a religious building, with a house of God. And it has to do with the purpose for which that house was created and dedicated. And it has to do with what happens when people forget God's purpose for God's house. All right? You ready to rock? Here we go. Let's look at Matthew chapter 21. It's on page 690. It'll also be on the screen. This is what Matthew writes. As they... He's referring to Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage of the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. At once you'll find a donkey tied there and a colt by her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone asks you or says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and they will send them right away. Verse four, he says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And here he quotes the prophet Isaiah who wrote this 800 years prior. Say to daughter Zion, in other words, say to the children of Jerusalem, see your king comes to you. Gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and they did just, let's see where we got, there we are. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt. They placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd gathered and spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. So what's going on here? What's going on here? Let me say two things I think are happening here. First is this, the savior of the world has come. Okay, that is, let's jump right into it. That's what's going on. The Savior of the world has come. The festival that is happening uh, in Jerusalem that we're reading about is the Passover festival, which commemorates the deliverance of the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt about 1,400 years before the birth of Christ. So it's this epic event, right? The parting of the Red Sea. After 400 years of slavery, now they're free under this epic leader, Moses. Um, and for the last 1,400 years, it has been celebrated as the defining event in the, Hebrews people, the Hebrew people's experience. The word Passover specifically refers to kind of the final straw that broke the Pharaoh of Egypt's back. Over a series of events which were designed to convince this man to set the Hebrew people free from slavery, he is unconvinced. It culminates with one night in which all of the firstborn kids in Egypt die. But... If somebody took a lamb that was committed and dedicated to the Lord and spread the blood of the lamb over the door, the angel of death would not go in and they would pass over. And so the child in that house would not die. And then the next morning, Egypt wakes up to chaos because everybody is dead, right? And it's the final straw and the, and the Pharaoh sets the, the, the slaves free. And they go through the, the parted sea and ultimately into the promised land. And then ever since then, for 1,400 years, the Hebrew people had celebrated that event. God had told them to celebrate it every year because this was the defining event. This was the event that declared this. We are the people God saved. That's who we are. That's our identity. Later, when times got hard again for Israel, God told them he would send another leader like Moses who would save them again. And so then every year they celebrated the Passover. And friends, this is still done today in Orthodox Jewish homes. They expected that leader like Moses, that next savior, the Messiah, to come. And they expected him to come at Passover. 
And so then here in Matthew 21, about AD 30, we read this famous healer teacher from Nazareth, this man named Jesus. He comes riding in right before Passover on a donkey, just like the prophet Isaiah had said 800 years prior would happen. So a lot of non-Jewish people are going to be looking at Jesus and going, what are you doing on that donkey? But a lot of the Jewish people are looking at Jesus and they're probably going, oh, that's a sign. And they're getting the message loud and clear. Here's what they say. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna, which means save. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So they're declaring that Jesus is the long expected descendant of King David, the leader like Moses that's going to save them again. And then when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth in Galilee. Okay, so what's going on? First, the savior of the world has come. And secondly, the crowds, the whole city is stirred and they wanna know who is this? People have been waiting and searching for a long, long time, and now the one that they've been waiting for and searching for is here. He's come. Friends, he's already come to the city, but the city needs to know who he is, okay? He has already come to the city, but the city still needs to know. For most of March, we've been renovating this place, we've been painting, we've been cleaning, we've been building things, and then last week, we put the big theater sign, it got renovated with new words, new sign, and I've been wishing that I could be outside, and I wish I could just hear what people say when they see that sign. I wish I could hear their reactions, you know, I wish I could read their thoughts, I wish when they drive by and see this new sign lit up with a new name, uh, I wish I could sort of hear them trying on the word Emmaus, a mouse, what is that, strain, what does that mean, who is this, who is this group that's in the, this old theater, I wish I could hop in their, their cabs or their trucks just for, you know, like 30 seconds and just hear the first reaction and the, and the, the questions or the, the observations or whatever. I've been meeting or in some cases reintroducing myself to the business owners on this street. And I know that they've been aware of our moving in because we've had scaffolding and tape and stuff outside. And, and I've been hoping that there'd be some sort of anticipation, some sort of hope, some maybe just curiosity, if nothing else, um, about our moving in. And um, everyone has been really polite and um, and I'm hoping that there's sort of a sense of anticipation or curiosity about who we are. Like, who is this old, or who is this new church that moved into the old theater? But friends, I gotta tell you, sadly, I'm not picking any of that up. None. In fact, one guy I was talking to last week, he was real polite. He said, hey, how'd your first Sunday go? I noticed you had a bunch of cars out there. How'd your first Sunday go? And I told him a few of the things that were especially encouraging to me, and his response to me was really telling. You know what he said? Well, good for you. Well, good for you. I've been thinking about that all week. Okay. And I wish I was one of those guys that could just come with the profound statement in the spur of the moment. I wish I was, but it takes me days to think of stuff like that, right? And it takes me weeks to come up with anything even partially clever, even a slightly profound. But I've been thinking about it all week, and this is what I wish I would have said. When he said to me, well, wow, good, you know, good for you, I wish I would have said, you know what, I hope it's good for you. That's what I wish I would have said. I hope it's good for you that there's this church that's coming right into your street, right? 
I hope it's good for you. I hope somehow this is good news for you. Friends, I love the Palm Sunday story. I love it. I love the image of Jesus riding in on a donkey. I preached on that every year. I love the upside down, backwards, strange de uh, description or definition of power that's, that's represented. I love that. I love this powerful fulfillment of prophecy, right? The savior of the world is here, right? I love the question on the curious lips of the crowd. Who is this? But you know what? This morning I'm really challenged by is not Jesus' ride into town. What I'm really challenged by is the first thing he does when he shows up in town. This is the way Matthew puts it. Jesus entered the temple courts and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. So a little context for you here. The temple is the center of a pretty complex uh, system of courtyards, of spaces to meet. Like in the fall, my son Isaiah and I went to a Dodger Giant game. It was the second to last game Vince Scully was gonna announce. We were excited. We went down there. We parked about a mile away and we're walking in. And before you even get there, you find everything you need to go to the baseball game. You can buy tickets. You can buy t-shirts. I got a great, cool Vince Scully t-shirt for my dad. You can buy food. And then you go through the security and you come into the, into the, uh, the stadium proper. But you're still not in there yet. You're still walking through courtyards where you can buy more food. It's kind of like that idea. So the courts surrounding the temple, in, in those courts, worshipers could buy a sheep or a dove to be sacrificed as part of the requirements for worship laid down by Moses so, so long ago. And so the essential problem, friends, was not the presence of merchants in the temple courts, especially during Passover. Huge influx of pilgrims and, and celebrants coming in to, to participate in this big festival. Tons of people would flood Jerusalem during this religious holiday. In fact, Josephus, who's a first century Jewish historian, he says 200,000 sheep were, pass were sacrificed on Passover. 200,000. Clearly, there was a real need for provisions required for participation in the Passover. So the problem is not the presence of the merchants. The problem seems to be more subtle than that. The problem seems to be something about the attitude of a heart about the motive, about the goal. And Jesus' indictment on those gathered, both in his actions and in his words, is violent, and it's decisive. He starts throwing tables. He starts kicking over money benches, which is kind of an ancient version of the cash register. Animals are running crazy. Coins are spread across the pavement. Luke writes in his account that Jesus drove out those who were selling. What does that mean? look like, to see a man drive people out of a space. Mark writes in his account that Jesus, quote, would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Would not allow anyone to carry merchandise. I don't know, some serious body checking or something happening in these places. In John's account, which could be an earlier cleansing, people debate about that, Jesus makes a whip. Jesus makes a whip. And so that's what Jesus does, and this is what Jesus says. He quotes two prophets. The first prophet he quotes is the prophet Isaiah out of chapter 56. My house will be called a house of prayer. Let me read the fuller version, the context of what Isaiah says there, because it's so uh, illustrative about the heart behind that statement. Isaiah 56, verse 3, let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, a foreigner bound to the Lord, a servant, 
Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch, that's a castrated man, probably also having to do with ownership or slavery. Let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me, who hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord and minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. I will give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings, their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations." The sovereign Lord declares, he who who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others besides those already gathered. You think you're not included. You think you're uninvited. You think you're disqualified. God is making it crystal clear. In other words, God's vision for his house, friends, is that it will be a place where everyone is welcome to encounter the living God, especially the broken and especially the foreigner. But Jesus is moved to violence because God's purpose for God's house has been corrupted. And so instead of a safe haven for welcome and encounter, it's become a market and not a wholesome market where people are getting what they need to to go through the the worship of of God, but it's become a corrupt market. It's become a self-serving scheme. And instead of making the house of God a witness to all nations, those selling there are selfishly leveraging the house of God for their own benefit. They're robbing others and they're robbing God. It was a fundamental failure of Israel as a nation of which Jerusalem, the city, and the temple were supposed to be central representatives. Instead of blessing the nation, Israel is taking advantage of their needs. Instead of asking, how can the presence of this house of God be good for this city? They were asking, how can the house of God be good for us? This idea of stealing or robbing from God that Jesus quotes, uh, it comes from the prophet Jeremiah, through whom God delivers a blistering judgment of the people of Israel. This is what he says. It's brief. I'll read it. He says, you steal and you murder and you commit adultery and perjury. You worship other gods. You follow them. And then you come and you stand before me in my house that bears my name. And you say, we are safe. And then God says, are you safe to do these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name, become a den of robbers for you? In other words, you think you can bring your self-serving agenda into my house and be okay? Not be confronted? Not be judged? You expect me to bless you just because you're here with your selfishness in my presence? So the first thing Jesus does when he rides into town is something nobody expects him to do. He violently opposes this pre-Passover commerce that's happening in the temple courts. And amidst the mayhem, the only thing his disciples hear him say is this, my house is to be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've turned it into a den of robbers. 
Friends, what challenges me today is that the first thing Jesus did when he rode into town on Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago was go to the place whose purpose was to point people to Jesus or to God, but which was failing to fulfill its purpose because it had been corrupted by selfish ambition. What challenges me today is the fact that the house of God was created to be a place for all people to encounter God. But when people forget that purpose for the house of God, it becomes the center of empty ritual and personal gain. And friends, when that happens, when the house of God fails to be God's house, even though the Savior of the world has already come, we end up with people of the city searching and asking, who is this? but not looking to the church for answers, not looking to the church for a place of welcome, not going to the church to encounter a God of love and grace and truth. We end up with people who notice that a new church has moved into an old theater and then they passively and politely say, well, good for you. When in fact, if it's not good for them, we've missed our calling. We have missed the purpose for which this space was given to us. Do you hear me? Friends, I think it comes down to this. Is this a house for us? Or is this a house for all? Like Steve said, is this going to be a public house dedicated to Jesus? Right? Or a private, selfish Will this house be used for God's purposes? Do we get to use it for whatever we want? Or are we called to a higher standard, a higher vision? Friends, will we be faithful to pursuing the expressed purposes of the house of God to be a house of prayer for all nations, a place where everybody can come to encounter the real presence of the living God? Today, we have dedicated this place and the ministry that happens in this place and the ministry that happens through this place to God and to his mission of, rest of restoration. And we are resolved, we are resolved to use this building, yes, but especially the people who use here, that we, the people who gather here, would in word and deed faithfully point to Jesus who is the one true hope of the whole world. And so may the living God dwell here and in us. And may this old theater be for all who enter in a sacred place. And may God build this house to be a place where God is welcomed and God is experienced and God is honored and God is praised and people from all kinds of backgrounds, with all kinds of wounds, experience the love and the grace of the living God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.